All right, well, hopefully you'll have your Bibles. If you do, please open them to the book of Lamentations, chapter 3. Lamentations, chapter 3, and let's begin with verse 21. And we're going to read to verse 26. Lamentations. If you've hit Revelation, you've gone too far. Back up. Verse 21. This I recall to my mind, and therefore I have hope. Through the Lord's mercies we are not consumed, because His compassion fail not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I hope in Him. The Lord is good to those who wait for Him, to the soul who seeks Him. It is good that one should hope and wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. On Wednesday nights, we began to take a look at the book of Lamentations together as a church. It's a book that is rarely referenced. It, of course, is known for its deep sadness and mourning. For the book was written by Jeremiah the prophet, who, of course, the book just previous to it, indicated and demonstrates that for 40 years, Jeremiah began his ministry as a prophet of God to call the nation of Israel, Judah, back to repentance before God would move in and judge the nation for their disobedience, their going after other gods. As Jeremiah wrote that the people had committed two evils against God. Number one, they abandoned him. And number two, they hewned out for themselves cisterns that could not hold water, meaning they looked to sources of life that were incapable of providing that, that source of life for them. For 40 years, Jeremiah begged and pleaded and preached and and called people to repentance. He was persecuted. He was hated for it. He was thrown into prison. He was thrown into a pit. He was, uh, the pit began to swell with water as the, it, the rains came upon the land. And he almost drowned, but God saved him out of it all. But when we come to the book of Lamentation, those 40 years have passed. The city of Jerusalem had been besieged by the Babylonians for 18 months. The city and the temple itself lay in ruins, and Jeremiah, from a, a point of or advantage of, uh, of height, seeing and overlooking the ruined city, the ruined temple, is now lamenting and mourning over what should have never happened. They had every opportunity to repent. They had every opportunity to turn back to God, and they chose not to. It didn't have to be this way, Jeremiah says. For the book of Lamentation is just that. It's five laments that uh, Jeremiah uh, articulates for us and writes for us because it didn't have to be this way. If they just would have turned back to God, if they just would have repented, if they just would have remembered, most importantly, God's faithfulness to them, none of this had to occur. But because of God's faithfulness to His Word, God brought about this judgment not to destroy them, but to correct them. To turn their hearts back to Him. To deal with the problem that He knew that would destroy and devastate the entire nation if He didn't step in and deal with. 
The New Testament calls this action of God a chastening where a parent would discipline a child, not for their destruction, not for their humiliation, but for their edification, for their building up. Discipline is just as important to the building up of our children as affirmation is. And God chastens us because of one simple fact. He loves us too much to leave us the way He found us. He wants you better. He wants you to become the man or woman of God that He has always desired you to become. And if we remain in sin, and if we entertain sin, and if we uh, live in a, a state of rebellion against God, trying to suppress the knowledge of God from our hearts and from our lives, He will often allow us this period of grace where He allows us to come back to our senses and realize who He is and all that He is. But if we don't, He'll chasten us as any loving parent would their child. I believe many of the difficulties we have found in our society that we have now reaped in our society is simply due to the family no longer understanding the healthy role of discipline within the family. Of course, I'm not advocating pain and suffering, but I am advocating that we as parents play a role in the development of our children, not only by the affirmation we give them, but by the discipline that we perform towards them. Showing discipline is just as much an act of love as affirmation is. But Jeremiah is weeping. And when we come to chapter 3 of the book of Jeremiah, he is at the lowest point in his life. In fact, if you read with me here in chapter 3, verse 18, he says very clearly, And I said, My strength and my hope have perished from the Lord. I'm at an all-time low, Jeremiah is saying. The temple is destroyed. The city of Jerusalem is destroyed. Many people have died due to this disobedience and rebellion against God. And it didn't have to be this way. It didn't have to go this way. It is interesting that some scholars and historians believe that the mountain in which Jeremiah was upon was the exact same one that we find Jesus weeping over the nation of Israel and Jerusalem specifically when he weeped over the city and said that I so much wanted to gather you together to be my people under the wing of my protection, but you were unwilling to come. And like Jeremiah, Jesus felt that pain of the rejection of His people. Giving them every opportunity to see and to receive Him as Messiah. And yet they chose not to. They were unwilling, He said, to do so. But in the midst of all of this sorrow, in the midst of this despair that Jeremiah found himself in, It would be fair to say that Jeremiah's world had come crumbling down around him. And personally invested in it because for 40 years he gave his life to the pursuit of the repentance of God's people. Pleaded with them. Begged them. Oh, he experienced frustration and he experienced discouragement because God told him from the very beginning that, well, frankly, Jeremiah, no one's going to listen. But because of my grace and my love towards my people, I'm going to give them every opportunity to turn back to me. 
And they chose not to. Forty years of patience. As a Christian, I've always been just fascinated by the long-suffering of our God. The patience that He shows us. The mercies. The compassion. It's incredible. I can't tell you how many times over these last 35 years after watching the news, I just said, Lord, come quickly. It can't get any worse than this. And then I watched the news a week later, and guess what? It's gotten worse than it did the week before. And then God, you know, gently reminds me that He hopes it all come to salvation, come to repentance. But as we see the world is being plunged in a period of time that the Bible speaks of greatly, we are getting closer and closer to the second coming of Jesus Christ. And we know that the world is going to get worse before it gets better. And it's going to climax in the return of our Lord. But His long-suffering is a direct result of His desire to see every person come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. That's His patience. He pleads with us. He begs us. He shows us time and time again that there's nothing in this world that is worth trading for your relationship with God. Nothing. After 35 years of walking with the Lord, I am still learning each and every day that the temptations that this world offers me that would draw me away from my Lord are so inferior to the privilege of knowing Him and walking with Him. As I stated, and as you know, that my father, uh, I grew up in a home, I was the only Christian. And so my parents, they, my dad and I had a dynamic relationship. And I loved, I loved him. He was a good mentor to me. But he challenged me in my Christian faith every single day. He was an agnostic. He didn't know if God existed. And if God did exist, could we know him personally and intimately? And so he would challenge me. He was a very educated man. And he would take me to task for 35 years, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. The day before he died, he received Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. Because to him, that's all that made sense anymore. The reason I say that is because I saw the faithfulness of God. I saw that God's heart was and desired that my dad know him. And as a result, I saw that his long suffering over those 35 years all made sense that moment that my dad gave his heart to Christ. Now I understand the long suffering of God. I could never do it, and thank goodness that I'm not God, that he is. Jeremiah is weeping. He's mourning to the point that it is so low that in verse 18, as we had just mentioned, all hope and all strength has departed from his mind and his heart. And then he, all of a sudden, at the lowest point, recalls to his mind the faithfulness of God. Oh, his circumstances didn't change. Jerusalem was still in a ruin. The temple was still destroyed. 
The people were still suffering immensely because of what they had brought on upon themselves. But notice with me in verse 21, he says, This I recalled to my mind. It's something that he knew about God. It's something that he had seen and experienced. The word recall there not only means was it a memory that he had or a, or a portion of knowledge of God that he had. It was also knowledge gained through experience with God. That's all encompassed in the Hebrew word that is used there for this word recall. At the lowest point of Jeremiah's life, in the wake of the destruction of the city of Jerusalem, which he invested 40 years in calling back to repentance, knowing that this did not happen, he was so low over it, and yet at the bottom of this experience, he recalled. And this recollection provided him hope in the most needed time of his life. So often when we walk with God as Christians, we believe that the pinnacles that we reach or have with God in our experience and walk in relationship with God are the greatest Christian spiritual lessons that we can obtain. And yet the Bible tells us just the opposite. That it's the valleys in which we really see and understand and experience God in a deep and meaningful way. And that seems to be consistent Of course, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I shall fear no evil, the psalmist writes. I think of a woman who really impacted my Christian life. Her name was Corey Tenboom. You may have heard the name. And reading of her experiences in the concentration camps during World War II, it's incredible the way her perception worked upon the circumstances in which she faced. You and I would look at the exact same situations and circumstances and say, oh my, how tragic it is. But she saw them as a blessing from God. She said that so many women were coming in to the concentration camp and her being a Christian knew that death was imminent and that the only hope for them was salvation in Jesus Christ, that she continuously looked for opportunities to be alone with these women so she could share the gospel with them. And God provided that opportunity in a way that you and I may feel is disgusting. For the barracks in which they resided was so infested with lice that the German soldiers didn't even want to enter into those barracks because they were afraid of what may happen to them. And so the women who gathered in there were left alone by the German soldiers, and Corey Tembum took that opportunity to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with these women just prior to their deaths, that they may enjoy an eternity with Jesus Christ. She saw it as a complete and utter, utter blessing. And after a while, she said, that ministry became so intense a fight in this concentration camp that now she was seeking times to be alone with the Lord so she could pray and wait to hear that still small voice of encouragement in her heart because only, the, only I can't even imagine the circumstances that she faced day in and day out. And so, in an act of what appeared to be punishment, the German soldiers put her in charge of 
sweeping the waste from the latrines into the local stream next to the latrines. So she was in a place all by herself, up to her knees, she said, in sewage, sweeping it down into the stream. And guess what God provided for her? A moment to be alone with Him. How is it possible to have that type of perspective in such circumstances as those? That's the secret that I'm going to share with you this morning. Because I believe it is the exact same thing that Jeremiah leaned upon in his own personal life to pull him out of this place of despair and discouragement and distress and trouble. As he recalled to his mind, and therefore he says, I have hope. And it's important that you understand that none of the circumstances around him have changed. But because of his knowledge of God, he could have hope in this moment. It wasn't the circumstances that changed, it was Jeremiah's perspective that changed. Because he took his eyes off of the circumstances and he put them back on to the Lord. And what was it that he recalled to his mind that gave him the hope that he needed at that moment, at that time? Through the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed. Jeremiah knew that the Lord had made promises to the Jewish people. That though he was going to bring this judgment upon them and it was going to devastate them, the ultimate uh, result of it and the ultimate desire goal of it was to correct them. And he wasn't going to utterly destroy them. He was going to leave a remnant, and from that remnant, his people would, would continue and live once again. God had every right to wipe them out completely. They had gone after other gods. They were sinning incredibly against his uh, law, against his covenant. And he told them in Deuteronomy 28 and 29, he said, If you obey me, I'll bless you in these ways. If you disobey me, I'll curse you in these ways. And the curses are much lengthier than the... The blessings. And he did this to correct them and to bring about the change that was needed after giving them 40 years of opportunity to do it. He had every right, God had every right just to completely wipe them out because of the sin that they had committed against him. And the sin was grave. And they had this arrogance about them that they could continue in their sins without consequence. They believed, well, we're the Jewish people. God will never, ever do something like this to us. And of course, they had the chorus of false prophets giving them that false hope day in and day out. Then there was the temple. Well, this is the temple of God. God will never destroy His temple. This is where God reigns. And so we are secure in this and therefore we can do whatever we desire to do simply because we are Jewish people and we reside near the temple of God. And it was all false. God said, hey, don't look to that. Look to your heart. Look to your heart. So often we justify our sin in one way or another. We believe that it isn't offensive to God any longer simply because we call ourselves a Christian. And yet God said no. 
And Jeremiah was the lone voice crying out to all of these people. But the first aspect of God that he remembered is God's mercies towards his people. As God was faithful to bring about this correction, so too will God be faithful to restore his people once again. And God was completely justified because of their sin to destroy them. For the wages of sin is death, right? And all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We are all guilty before God. But because of His mercies, us not getting what we do deserve, He was hopeful. And we are not utterly consumed because of the mercies of God. And then He goes on. And He says, Because of His compassion, because His compassion fails not. The heart of God towards His people was always for their repentance. In fact, in verse 33, it says that God did not judge willingly. Meaning, I didn't want to do this. This was the last course of action. I wanted you to obey. I wanted you to come back to me. I didn't want to bring this upon you. How often through the Gospels do we read individuals coming to God, the person of Jesus Christ, interacting with Him, and finding compassion? How often... Do we read of Jesus observing His people and His heart moved with compassion to meet the needs in which they have? We serve and follow a compassionate God. And in that compassion is God's love. In that compassion is His long-suffering. In that compassion is His patience towards you and I as individuals. In that compassion we have access to God. He's approachable to us. There's nothing more discouraging than working for someone who isn't approachable. Have you ever had that experience? And because you have to work with them and because you report to them in the company, you have to interact with them, but it's never a good time to do so. And yet God is just the opposite. For the writer of Hebrews told the Jewish people that God is accessible to them at any time. That they can go boldly into the throne room of God to find help and grace in their time of need. God is always approachable. And that approachability that He offers us is based and founded upon the compassion that He has towards us. And third, notice with me, That he was faithful. Verse 23. And these compassions, these mercies are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The faithfulness of God is key to us knowing God. On Friday, in the youth group, we're trying to help those who come to know God. And again, this is the great dilemma that many will rest upon uh, when they don't want to really consider or really deal with the idea of God's existence and therefore dealing with knowing who God is. Calling themselves an agnostic, they try to uh, you know, uh, divert the conversation in a different direction. 
But as we displayed on Friday, not only is God's existence completely provable, we also demonstrated that God is completely knowable, inviting us to know Him, wanting us to know Him, doing everything He can so we can know Him. But knowing Him is though the beginning of trusting Him there are some elements of, that we learn and discover in knowing Him that allows us to trust Him. There are four elements. Number one, we need to know that God is truthful. In every uh, article ever written on how to get to know a person, they say it all begins with asking specific questions and interacting with that person. We demonstrated on Friday that the only way that's going to be effective is if we are trusting that the answers given to our questions are honest, right? If they're not honest, they can say anything they want about about themselves. And we can walk away with a total picture and understanding of that person that's completely false because they gave us false information. In knowing God, I think it's very important that you realize that one of the things that God says He can't do is lie. Because He wants you to know that what He is telling you is truthful. From Genesis to Revelation, God never frowned upon anyone who was asking Him a question in the pursuit of knowing Him. Never. In fact, He encouraged it. And He wants to know that in the manner in which He responds to us is truthful. Therefore, God cannot lie the second element in knowing god is consistency a person can say anything at any time right and they can even mean it at that time but over a period of time we learn if they really mean and believe what they have told us and said right time is the great uh, revealer of truth are they consistent or are they hypocritical are they flipping backwards and forwards God not only wants us to know that He's truthful and that we can uh, trust the answers in which He is giving us, He also wants us to know that we can trust Him because He's consistent. Wouldn't it be nice if we had a verse that really displayed and shows God's consistency? Oh, I think we do. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. God is consistent. And And in an inconsistent world, that is so necessary, isn't it? In a world that is filled with insecurity, isn't it great to have a secure God who's consistent? The same yesterday, today, and forever. The third one is His faithfulness. Does God keep His word? He can be truthful, He can be consistent, but is He faithful? Does He act upon what He has said? You know, one of the greatest downfalls of parenting is when we tell, we're going to tell our kids we're going to do something and then not do it, regardless of whatever that is. They see that as inconsistency. They say that's not being faithful. Seeing it through. Isn't it interesting how much God tried to stress from Genesis to Revelation that He is faithful to His Word? That every promise that He has ever made to us, He is able to perform. If God wouldn't have judged His people here in the time of Jeremiah, He would have been unfaithful to His Word because He said He would and then didn't do it. And 
Jeremiah actually sees that as a plus. He was faithful. And just as he was faithful to bring about this judgment for correction, he is also going to be faithful in the reestablishing of his people in the world. And he was. But truth, consistency, and faithfulness must be governed by something if we are truly going to lean into God and trust Him by faith the way we need to. And the fourth element of that is love. I know that God loves me in such a way that He knows what's best for me. Now that best may be nothing compared to what I believe is best for me, but I can be assured of this fact. That His love for me will always prompt him and provoke him to do not necessarily what I want him to do, but what I need him to do in my life. Demonstrating his love, he sent his only begotten son, Jesus Christ. For God so loved the world. He's demonstrating his love through the sending of his only begotten son. And that love is undeniable. That sacrifice in which he has made is undeniable. For no greater act of love is this than one lay down his life for another. So knowing that he's truthful, knowing that he's consistent, knowing that he's faithful, knowing that he loves me, allows me to trust him. Trust is one of those things that doesn't come easy anymore, does it? As one individual once said, it can take 30 years to build trust. It can take 30 seconds to lose it. And God knows that. But knowing those four things allows me to trust Him by faith. To say in a moment such as this, a moment in which Jeremiah was facing at this point, I recalled these things to my mind and it gave me hope. The mercies of God, the compassion of God, and the faithfulness of God. And then he ties it all up. And here is the great revealer of the source of strength and the reason that he was able to look past his circumstances, to see them as he did from the Lord's perspective. Notice what he says here in verse 24. This is the key to it all. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I hope in Him. What does he mean when he says, the Lord is my portion? That's not a phrase that we would use every single day. If I were to say to my beautiful wife, honey, you are my portion. She says, are you hungry? Or what are you looking for here? Portion, I don't, I don't understand. What does that mean? When the children of Israel were led out of Egypt into the land in which God had promised them, each tribe was given a portion of land. That portion was their inheritance. It was the, way, it was the manner in which God was blessing them. But one tribe was not given any inheritance. They, they weren't allotted an, a portion because God wanted him to be their portion, and that was the Levites. The Levites weren't given it because God wanted them to focus on Him. Not on what God could give for them or to them, but they wanted, He wanted them to focus on Him. 
See, Jeremiah has come to a place in his relationship with God where he's not seeking all the things that God can provide for him. Unfortunately, we have created a Christianity in America that is all centered on us. And we follow God under the conditional fact that He will provide for us all the things that we want. And unfortunately, that is so counterintuitive to the Scriptures that it negates the beauty of the Christian faith. I don't follow God simply on the basis of what He can provide for me. My whole desire in following God is to know Him. I don't necessarily uh, follow, I don't uh, conditionally follow him so I can obtain all of these things. I follow him because I want to know him. I want God, not what God can provide for me. I want God. I want him to be my portion. As the Levites were to focus upon God, as Jeremiah says, no, I don't want, I don't need those things that you bless me with to follow you. I just want you, God. I just want to know you. In fact, in John chapter 17, Jesus prayed and He said that they may have eternal life. And this is eternal life, that they know you. That's what it's all about. Knowing God. Having that relationship with Him. Knowing His heart, knowing His character, knowing His wisdom, knowing His mind. That's what I want. I want Him only He can allow me to, to look at the circumstances that I may be surrounded by that are devastating and horrible and say, God, in it all, I know that You are working. I know that You are doing something. How often our prayer is, Lord, take me out of the valley. Take me out of this place. Take me away from here. Just make everything better. Make everything perfect. Flatten out everything so, Lord, oh, then I'll be happy. No, God says be happy anyways because you've got me. That's what I want. At 52, that's what I want. I want God. This world has nothing to offer me that is superior to the knowledge of God. Knowing Him personally, intimately, and deeply. That's what I want. I hope you want it too. But because Jeremiah said this, he was able at that moment to recall the mercies of God, the faithfulness of God, the compassions of God, even though that his world was crumbling around him. And because of that fact, notice what he is able to do. The Lord is good to those who wait for Him. To the soul who seeks Him, it is good that one should hope and wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Often we fall into that time of despair and and discouragement when we are confronted by things we cannot control. Jeremiah couldn't do anything. He could take a broom to Jerusalem. I'm going to clean up the streets. It would be futile, right? The city was in waste. He couldn't return the people who had been destroyed. He couldn't rebuild the temple. He couldn't do any of that. But the hope that he now gained in recalling all that he did about God allowed him to wait on God to bring about the solution. I don't understand God's timing. I'm just going to be frankly honest with you. I have my planner. I have my calendar. I have... 
uh, you know, it all organized and scheduled. But I never see God logging into it to say, okay, Eric, what you got? Okay, good, I'll bring it all about now. I have come to this one conclusion that my timing is never God's timing. But because Jeremiah knew that God was truthful, that God was consistent, that God was faithful, that God loved them, he knew that God was going to fulfill what he said he was going to do in Jeremiah's lifetime or not. And he rested in that and waited upon God in the manner in which he did. And he says it's good that one should hope and wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Waiting on God and doing nothing is not the same thing, right? Let's be clear about that. Waiting on God and doing nothing are not the same thing. Though I may not be, you know, uh, expending physical and mental exer- you know, uh, exercise to try to resolve an issue, doesn't mean that God isn't. I am doing something. I'm waiting on God. He's taking care of it. Well, it just looks like you're sitting around doing nothing. No, I'm just waiting quietly on God to resolve the issue before me. There's nothing I can do. It's out of my control. But it's never out of God's control. It's never out of His reach. It's never out of His capability. Often we grow discouraged when we place our own limitations upon God and think, well, if I can't deal with it, then surely God can't either. What a mistake we make in reducing God to such a size. But this idea that all of this is centered around, that God is His portion, wasn't only in the life of Jeremiah. We also read this being the life of David. In the Psalms, Psalm 16.5, the psalmist wrote, O Lord, you are the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You maintain my lot, meaning you maintain my life. You are my portion, David says. David wanted to know God. It wasn't just what God could provide for David. God, David wanted to know God. That's what he wanted. By the time we get to Psalm 73, 26, David goes further. As David is growing, as the Psalms continue, he says, my, my flesh and my heart fail, he says in Psalm 73, 26. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. I realize that this is out of my capability. This is out of uh, my uh, c- control. I'm going to wait on God. And then the psalmist writes in Psalm 119, he says, 119 verse 57, You are my portion, O Lord. I have said that I would keep your words. The revelation of God through His word. We cannot recall something that we don't know. I have been standing here for 25 years encouraging people each and every day to be in prayer and in God's Word every single day. By doing so, you prepare yourself to be able to recall these things of God, the character of God, the knowledge of God, when you are faced with crises, when you are faced with dilemmas, troubles, trials, and tribulations. It's incredible to consider 
You prepare yourself in advance. I get so sad when I hear Christians tell me, I, you know, I read the Bible, but it's just not relevant for my life. We are so conditioned in this country not to listen to something that we don't believe is immediate, immediately relevant in our lives. And yet, what we need now more than ever is to have our hearts and mind prepared for those things that are coming next, don't we? I didn't appreciate the wisdom that my dad gave me when I was a teenager. I was convinced by 15 years old, I knew everything about life that there was to know. Thoroughly. And there's no way that my dad, growing up at my age in the 40s, could even relate to me in the 80s, you know. Dad, they didn't even have electricity then, you know. You know, Dad, big band music's been out for years, you know, out of style for years. I thought I knew everything. I thought that my time absolutely excluded any wisdom that he could possibly give me of him remembering when he was 15 years old. But the wisdom I needed was not from him being 50 or, uh, 15 years old, it was from him being 50 years old. That's the wisdom that I needed at the time that I was 15, but I thought I knew it all. But as time went on, those things that he shared with me when I was 15 that I totally dismissed, I find myself leaning upon today. That's the way God works. He's preparing you for what's coming next. You may be reading something. You're like, I don't, this doesn't apply to me at all. Well, maybe not today, but it will tomorrow. It's a very important thing to see and then to understand. You can't recall that which you don't know. Now, what about David? Let me bring this to you this way. David's pursuit of God, David calling God his portion, it's God that I want more than anything else, gave David the incredible title of one who seeks after God's own heart. That David was a man after God's own heart. 